Okay, this week and next, as someone mentioned, uh, as Phil said earlier, uh, various members of the BCC's Basingstoke Community Church's core team are going to be speaking in all four of our congregations. And we're all speaking on the same passage with similar messages. What does it mean to be a truly spiritual person? What does a really spiritual person look like? Do they look like that? Or that? Or that? Each of us have our own thoughts about that. And I won't embarrass anyone by asking you to share them. But it gets problematic in churches. Um, is it my fault this is booming, Andy? Or I'll just keep talking and leave you to twiddle knobs. Um, but it gets problematic in churches when we expect our leaders to be something they're not. One of the biggest problems in the early church arose when a church, or the founder of a church, wasn't the person that the church thought he should be. And that church was the church in Corinth. And the founder of that church was the Apostle Paul. Paul had planted the church in about 50 AD, or CE, whichever currency you use. He'd been chased around, um, let me get the red thing here, the north and the, so he'd been chased around the north and the west of the Aegean there, um, being asked to leave Philippi after he got imprisoned and beaten there. He had to flee from Thessalonica, he had to leave Berea, and then he ended up spending some time in Athens. And he eventually arrived from Athens in Corinth, where he set up a church after he'd been rejected in the synagogue. He met Priscilla and Aquila, and he set to work making and mending tents with them to support himself. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 18. He spent quite a bit of time there, probably about 18 months before moving on. And in that time, he built up the church and the believers in Corinth. Now, Corinth was at that time an important city in the Roman Empire. It sat at the centre, as you can see, of several trade routes, the north, south and the east, west trade routes. And it was a wealthy Roman colony. It was a bit like the Apollo Hotel, probably. <laughs> uh, it was notable for being on this trade, for commerce, being on this trade route, where it was also very involved in the marble trade. And as a result of being right at the heart of commerce in that part of the world, um, there was a lot of new money around. You had a lot of people who were probably like modern footballers. Well, they probably weren't that like modern footballers, but in money terms, they were like modern footballers, suddenly come into a great deal of money. Uh, and that combination... Sorry, I've missed something. It was also a centre for the arts and philosophy and decadence, it was also known for. So it was also a place of huge religious diversity. According to a well-known Bible scholar called Phil Norris, there were 26 <laughs> shrines and temples there. And now that combination of new money, new ideas, and a lot of people passing through made it a place of great opportunity for sin. And there was plenty of it. It was a kind of first-century cross between Manchester and Magaluf, if you want to kind of <laughs> merge those two together. And into this climate 
comes the Apostle Paul, and he successfully plants a church while doing some pretty menial work to support himself. He's not at all like the big-name speakers who turned up from time to time with their fancy speeches, the secretary slaves who looked after all their needs, and the patrons who financed them. In modern terms, he doesn't have a fancy suit, he doesn't stay in smart hotels, he doesn't rock up on a private jet or book big auditorium events. But then after Paul leaves Corinth, after about 18 months probably, the rumblings begin. They don't like what he says about their sexual immorality. They don't like the way that he calls out people in the church for their greed or their idolatry or their bad behaviour. And they don't like the fact that he just is not like the people they regard as really spiritual. And they start comparing him to people who match their spiritual expectations. People like Apollos, who really knows how to deliver a sermon. He could get everybody on their feet. And he was a real scholar, was Apollos. He really knew his stuff. Whereas this Paul comes in stuttering and all of that um, and talking to the people that we really wouldn't want him talking to. Or there was Cephas. We don't know anything else about him or her, except that it's Cephas. So divisions start arising within the church over whether they should regard themselves as being under Paul's authority. Now, Paul's previously sent them a letter in chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5.19 to attempt to deal with these issues. They then replied to that letter and apparently, according to the beginning of the letter, some of Chloe's people have now come and told Paul a bit more, and he is writing another reply to this letter. So whether we call it 1 Corinthians, it's not the first one. Um, there are probably about three or four of them. And what we're about to read comes out of all that mess. So um, I'm going to read from, I think I might have got my slides with the wrong aspect Oh, we might just be okay. Um, so um, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23. I'm going to read from the ESV for a particular reason. I apologise to those of you at the back if you can't see this. I'm used to um, a building where people don't go behind where Malcolm is, really. So um, I must remember that if you ever invite me back. So 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23 says this. It says, For though I am free from all... I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ." that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So it's a pretty dense passage. Where do we begin? Paul has just set, uh, spent the previous chapter setting out his stall on meat offered to idols. 
uh, defending his stance, and now he goes on to defend himself further. He is under attack by people from this church, and this letter is a real, or a lot of this letter, is a real defence of his apostleship. So we'll start with the first sentence. I, didn't, I deliberately didn't use the NIV here because in attempting to emphasise one aspect of the meaning, I think it loses another, and it's in this first sentence. Now, for those of you who object to preachers using Greek, I'm really sorry, just close your eyes and have a snooze. You've got a couple of minutes of Greek here, but it is for a reason. Um, so the Greek here says, free therefore being from all... To all, myself I have enslaved. If you were to literally translate each word as it's written, that's what you get. Um, so what Paul is saying is, I'm free from all, but to all I've become a slave. He's using a kind of literary device here that is very symmetrical. It's, do, do you see what I mean? So it's, I am free from all. To all, I've become a slave. There's a sort of symmetry about this sentence that actually I can't find any of our translations that really bring that out particularly well. They're concentrating on other aspects of the meaning and they're not getting it wrong. They're just emphasising something different in their translation. But I think this is quite important in our reading of it because what Paul is saying is, I'm completely free from everybody. Nobody's got a hold over me to make me do what they want. But actually, I'm not going to abuse that freedom and do whatever I want because I've actually become a slave to everybody. And I've chosen to be a slave to everybody to do what the gospel demands because I'm primarily concerned, Paul says, about the gospel. That's what really matters. Um, so, Greek over, you can wake up. Paul isn't talking here about this. Uh, I'll get it off the screen as well for those of you who tend to get upset with Greek. Um, but so Paul isn't talking here about the kind of freedom you and I like to think about in our 21st century world, the sort of freedom that Donald Trump likes to talk about, not picking on Donald, but he's not talking about being free just to do whatever I want to do. He is talking about being constrained by the gospel. He has very deliberately not become like the other so-called spiritual people around so that he's not bound to them. He has rejected the Roman system of patronage um, where you were funded by a patron who would expect you to promote his interests, especially his political interests. Um, if you want to learn more about that, Robert Harris's historical novels on Cicero are very good. They, they talk about how the patrons would expect this kind of... They'd walk down the street and there'd be 20 of their clients running along behind them, coming along to support them and cheer for them, even if they were talking complete rubbish. That's why I brought people from Tadley today. <laughs> um, but... Paul is completely rejecting that system of patronage, that system of, um, of being paid by someone and kept by someone uh, so that you would be subservient to them, do what they wanted, and very often do their dirty work for them. He's saying, nope, I'm having nothing to do with that. I am going to be free from that so that I'm not under obligation to anybody. He's making sure that he's not beholden to anyone, 
not to a politician, a celebrity, or a business sponsor who might want him to temper what he says or does. Now, when I was preparing this, my, my kind of natural instinct with this passage is to go down the servanthood route. That's where, I, if I were given a choice on this passage, is what I would probably preach, but I felt... Lord, no, that's not where I can go. So there's a powerful message about servanthood in this passage. Um, I'm afraid I'm just going to put that on one side over here, and we're going to look at something else. So, so why does he work in this way? Well, he says at the end of verse 19 that he does it to win as many as possible. He has accepted these constraints on himself, become a servant to all, so he might win as many as possible. For Paul, the priority is the gospel. He will speak to anyone in their own language, on their own terms, to communicate the gospel to them. To the Jews, he speaks in Jewish terms, without being constrained by his Jewishness. To those who weren't under the Jewish law, he became like them, while still being constrained by what he refers to as the law of Christ. The gospel is the priority. He finishes this section by saying, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. What Paul has done is to choose to set aside his rights as an apostle. He's, he's saying, I do have those rights, but I've chosen to set them aside and become a servant, or a slave, actually, to the gospel. So, before we get into all of that, I'm just going to deliver a health warning here. Please don't hear me saying that you can do anything, or that anything goes, and you can do whatever you like. That is not what I'm saying. We are constrained by what Paul calls the law of Christ. That's not what Paul is saying, and it's not what I'm saying. Okay? That's the health warning here. Um, so, what are the implications for us? Well, I think it's to do with mission. Paul here is talking about the world outside the church. Uh, and the first thing, I've got four points for those of you who want to know how many mints you can eat. Uh, and the first one is employing, they all begin with E as well after a fair bit of manipulation. <laughs> so the first one is employing the language. If we are to communicate with the culture around us, we have to communicate in the way that the rest of the culture does. I grew up in a family where we didn't have a TV and we didn't have a phone. My father's strongly atheist, so it wasn't for Christian reasons. He still is at 91. But that meant that when I went to school, I hadn't had access to many of the things that my classmates had. And that impacted, seriously actually, on my ability to connect with many of them. It also meant when someone wanted a friend to go and play with them, I wasn't the one invited because they couldn't phone me. Um, and I can remember the morning after Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, I was the only one in the class who hadn't seen it. I was also the only one in the class who was fully awake. <laughs> but I wasn't able to communicate with those around me in ways that they wanted to communicate. I didn't see the football results, so I had no idea what was going on in the world of football. Um, 
So I became quite isolated. And that was before all the trouble I got into because I hadn't watched the TV programme that the teacher had told us to watch uh, and based the next lesson around. And my dad wouldn't let me ask someone else if I could watch it at their house because he maintained that it wasn't necessary to have a, a TV and if the school wanted me to watch TV programmes, they were wrong. Um, so anyway, I've got over that. Um, and, and actually, God has done something in me because of that. It actually gave me... A, a, I'm not scared of being different, as some of you know. Um, but the point is that we have to be prepared to communicate in the way that the world around us wish to communicate, using the communication medium that they want to use. In Tadley, this one will get... Some, will be, some won't like this. But in Tadley, we use Facebook to communicate, as you do, because that's the way the world around us communicates. We don't use it to be cool. I couldn't be cool if I tried. And it is no longer cool anyway to use Facebook. <laughs> if we want to communicate with mothers in Tadley, it's a waste of time trying to do it via notice boards. It's a waste of time putting up posters at school gates. But 2,000 plus Tadley mothers are on the Tadley Mums Facebook group. If you want to get a message out in Tadley, Tadley Mums Facebook group is where you do it. It is the most efficient method of communicating to the, communi the community. Now, some people get quite sniffy about using Facebook. I occasionally have delegations in church coming up. Someone actually wanted me to print out Facebook one time and put it on the table at the back so they weren't excluded. I told them just to join Facebook. But some people get quite sniffy about it and are quite proud not to be on it. But it's the way the world around us is communicating. In fact, we're, we're beginning to have to move on from Facebook because younger people now aren't using it. They're on Instagram, they're on Snapchat, they're on TikTok. Um, sorry? <laughs> You're cool. <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, so, but what I am saying here is we don't use social media to be cool. We use it in order to advance the gospel. That's why we use it. We're not using it to be cool or hip or trendy. We're using it to advance the gospel. Not using social media nowadays is like refusing to use the phone 50 years ago, and I know where that got me. So by all, uh, we do it so that by all means, we might win some. That's why we do it. So Paul enters the world of those he's trying to reach, and he communicates them in the terms in which they choose to communicate. He talks about it here, and we see him doing it in the previous chapter, uh, sorry, not the previous chapter, the chapter in Acts before the chapter that talks about Corinth. So Acts chapter 17 in Athens. We see him doing it there, where he's referring to their statues, their gods and their poets. Mm. He enters their cultural world in order to communicate the gospel to them. So that's the first one. The second one is entering the culture. Rick Watts talks about who... I'm sure if you've had Phil, you know who Rick Watts is. Rick Watts talks about how it was a stroke of genius for God to make the Apostle Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul was a Jew 
who grew up in a thoroughly Greek part of the empire. And he spoke Greek, the main, main, sorry, the main language of the Roman Empire at that time. Greek in that world was like English is in the world in which we now live. He was thoroughly soaked in both Jewish and Greek culture and, and thought, and he was able to see the problems with both of them and to criticise both of them, but was also supremely good at communicating with both of them. So Rick would say that was a genius move on God's part, which I'm sure, well, I don't know whether God's impressed with that or not, because <laughs> everything God does is genius. But Paul is not scared of becoming a bit like those he's seeking to reach. And that's one of the problems between him and these Corinthians and between him and Jewish believers elsewhere. It's what got him in trouble as he went round the Aegean Sea there. And it's what will eventually get him into the trouble that probably leads to his execution. Now, some years ago, I was doing a course at a Bible college and I came across someone who um, who'd quite challenged my ideas on this. She has a ministry, and please hear the end of this before you walk out, she has a ministry of joining gay pride marches and seeking to correct the impression that the people on them have that the church and Christians hate them. She's given herself to reaching out with an authentic gospel which affects the way that she dresses, the sort of things she reads, the music she listens to, so that she can understand that culture and move in that culture. But she's seeking to do it to reach out with an authentic gospel in an environment in which many of us would probably feel very uncomfortable. Now, I don't know how she's doing now, um, but at that time, she was certainly seeing fruit from that ministry. She had entered the world and the culture of the people she was seeking to reach with the gospel, and she was seeking to do it in an authentic way. Did people misunderstand her? Absolutely they did. Now there's a danger here, and we need to be aware of it, as Paul is aware of it. In the passage we read, he says that he reaches out to those under the law, and then he adds in brackets, although I'm not under it. And he's, to those without the law, he says, he becomes as one of them, but again in brackets, um, I've lost my place yet, yeah, but I'm constrained by the law of Christ. And the task for us is to understand the culture around us, to be able to speak to that culture in its own terms, while not allowing that culture to take over our own thinking. I'm going to repeat that. Um, the task for us is to understand the culture around us, to be able to speak to that culture in its own terms while not allowing that culture to take over our thinking. Now, Ross Hastings, who is a Scottish theologian who does use a lot of long words, um, he wrote a book called Missional Church, Missional God, of which I understood about 20%. But he calls it inculturation and not enculturation. Now... Those are rather confusing words, so let's try a different approach. I like to think about it as immersed, but not saturated. Um, so modern lifeboats, there's one up here, are designed so that they can pass right through a huge wave 
without and come out the other side unchanged and fully functioning, at least when everything goes well. Um, they are they can be completely immersed in the sea, um, but be unaffected by it, but be perfectly at home in it. I, as I was driving here, I thought actually a submarine might have been a better illustration, so I apologise for that. Um, but a shipwreck is eventually saturated by the water around it, so that it becomes, so its very nature is changed. Um, I, Hesitate to talk about the Mary Rose with some Mary Rose experts back there. But um, you know, if you go and see the Mary Rose, it took them years to get the water out of that boat. Um, it simply, and a shipwreck ends up becoming part of its environment and barely distinct from it, covered in barnacles with fish swimming in and out and so on. And I think we are called to immerse ourselves in the culture around us, but not to become so saturated by it that we end up becoming indistinguishable from it. That's the tension we live in. And folks, I think we have a choice. We can choose not to touch it at all and think of ourselves as very pure and clean. There was a group in the Bible who did that and they weren't very well regarded by Jesus. Or we can choose to actually come into contact with it, recognising that what the Lord Jesus touched that was impure became clean. Because he who's in us is greater than he who's in the world. We can choose to, to put ourselves in that place with some caveats um, so that we are able to communicate with those around us. Cross-cultural missionaries do this all the time. Ben and Miriam did it in Brazil. Um, Tim and Rachel Munger and Matt and Amy Dixon have been doing it for years in Tanzania. They are, they're white black men now. They're white Africans, almost, because they have become so immersed in that culture that they know how to behave there. So how do we do that? Well, I think we do it by maintaining strong links in the church community from which we go out. We do it by maintaining a strong devotional life, prayer and being in our Bibles. We do it by engaging our critical faculties, both inside and outside the church. And we do it by developing accountability pastorally in that church context. You and I can help here by supporting, <coughs> encouraging and praying for oops, those close to it or, and keeping close to those who put themselves out there culturally. Rather than questioning their motives and muttering over coffee about how they're playing with fire, we actually need to support people who put themselves out there and keep close to them, not distance ourselves from them. So that's the second one, is entering the culture. The third one I've called expectation busting, because I couldn't find a synonym for busting that ended with it or began with an E. So, um, Paul refused to be confined by the expectations of these Corinthians about what a spiritual person should look like or sound like. He didn't come into town on a private jet wearing a fancy suit and have elaborate PowerPoint presentations prepared beforehand. He didn't have fancy arguments. He didn't go 
for the big audiences. He kept plugging away everywhere he went, seeking to understand the people he was among. He communicated Jesus and he made sure he was beholden to nobody in doing that. He broke all their expectations of what a great leader should look like to the extent that this letter has to deal with those false expectations. His response, I'm not going to become like them just to please people in the church. It's the gospel that matters. They were expecting this and they got this. Their expectations were shattered of what a spiritual man should look like. Paul was highly educated, a brilliant mind, incredibly capable and immensely talented. But he was prepared to become whatever he needed to become for the sake of the gospel, even if it brought him into conflict with those who owed their very salvation to him. So we need to be prepared to bust others' expectations of us if we're to reach those outside the body of Christ without worrying about whether we'll look unspiritual to those inside the body. I worked in the business world for over 30 years before I ever worked for the church, and the biggest compliment anyone ever paid me was when someone said to me, you're not like I'd expect a Christian to be, and he meant it as a compliment. He wasn't saying I was behaving in an unchristian way. Um, But the sad thing is, I only ever heard someone say that a handful of times. Also, by the way, just in passing, we need to think carefully about the expectations we place on our own leaders. They're only human, and we haven't got many spare ones at the moment. So just be careful about the expectations we place on those who lead us. So we've got this guy, Paul, who's turned up in Corinth and he sets up what is effectively a repair business under the railway arches. A tent maker would have been repairing tents for people who were travelling through on business. So he sets up a repair business under the equivalent of the Corinthian railway arches. They didn't have railways, I know that. (laughs) Um, But the equivalent of the Corinth railway arches to fund his church planting ministry. He's laid aside all of his status, all of the expectations, all of what would make him look like a really red-hot man with great ideas in a town like a city like Corinth. He's done that. He's entered the culture. He's speaking the language. Christians or English Christians can get very sniffy about language. Um, I can remember we had someone in our church once who, who told me that God had called them to France. And so I said to them, so you're learning French then? Oh no, we're not going to learn French. <laughs> and I said, how on earth? This is long before I led the church. This is when I was just a troublemaker on the back. But <laughs> I just, I said to them, how on earth do you expect to reach the French without being prepared to learn any French? And they said, oh, the Holy Spirit will do it. And I said, I think you'll find he won't. Um, They never did go to France. Um, But 
He's learned to speak the language. He's communicating in the way that people in that culture are doing. And then the fourth one is embracing risks. So we're talking about employing the language, entering the culture, expectation busting, and embracing risk. In all of this, Paul risked being misunderstood, and people did misunderstand him. He risked having his motives misrepresented, and they were. And he risked being mistreated, and he was. With Paul, this was all for the sake of the gospel that he proclaimed. Now with me, if I'm misunderstood or misrepresented or mistreated, it's usually because I've been unwise. Paul embraced risks in society, in the church, on land and on the sea in order to take his gospel to the ends of the world as he knew it. The reason he wanted to go to Spain was because that was the furthest west that they knew existed. Tom Wright, who I greatly appreciate, I've given up trying to read all his books because he writes them faster than I can read them, but he talks, oh, I've heard him talk about how when the Apostle Paul turned anywhere, turned up anywhere, it caused a riot, he got beaten up, thrown into prison and chucked out of town. And Tom Wright always says, yeah, and when I turn up anywhere, they serve tea and biscuits. <laughs> and it's a bit like that for us. We've become very comfortable. In the Western church, we've become cautious and we've become safe, seeking in a world where the church more widely is contracting, seeking to safeguard what we've already got. Now, I can remember early on in my working life regularly hearing the phrase, if you keep doing what you've always done, you'll keep getting what you've always got. Uh, and that phrase was meant to say, we need to be prepared to change. About 15 years ago, that changed. It might have been 20 years ago. I'm, the time flies nowadays. But about 15 years ago, that changed. To keep doing what you've always done and you won't even get what you've always got. Because we live in a world that is rapidly changing. The department store industry has discovered that to its great cost, as have any number of other major retailers, among others. Um, but we live in a changing world. And if we just keep doing what we always did, we won't get the results in the future that we got in the past, by doing the things in the future that we did in the past. We need to be prepared to take risks, folks, if we're going to see fruit in a rapidly changing world. And I say that, I think Dave Oliver spoke about or mentioned, I came up with a suggestion one time and Dave Oliver said, the usually cautious Greg Wittick. Um, <laughs> but I... I a lot of my working life, I managed large IT projects. And a large part of what I had to do in that role was to spend a great deal of time thinking about risk. And there were three groups of people you came across in that world. There were, the, I'll call them the Jobsworths. I apologise if you're one of them. But there were the Jobsworths who would come up with a list of risks as long as your arm They'd have anything and everything in that list, and you'd be thinking, good grief, why did I invite you to this meeting? Because we're now going to, have to deal with every one of them. Um, so you had them on the one hand, 
They usually worked in IT or finance, and I say that as someone who spent his life in IT and finance. I'm not putting down people in IT and finance. They usually sat on the back row. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you had those who were saying, can we just stop talking about problems, get out there and sell something? And they usually worked in sales or marketing. <laughs> Um, and didn't really want to be bothered with the risks that you were worrying about if a computer were to shut down in the middle of the night. And then in the middle, you had the people I quite enjoyed working with who would actually have thought, now, what are the real risks here? What are the things we really need to be concerned with? And not only thinking what they were, but had already thought through, and what do we need to do about it? So... And I think that has a, a translation for us in the church, in a sense. I think we can, on the one hand, say, oh, no, we're not going to do that, because what might people think about us? How might it appear if we do that? Oh, we'll, we'll look a bit bad if we do that. Or oh, what if it all goes wrong? We'll have spent a lot of money. Um, we can be like that, or we can be like the others over here and say, oh, it doesn't matter. And they're the ones who will end up on the 6 o'clock news. Um, not the salespeople, the people in the church who, want to, who decide to be reckless. Or we can take that road which says, now seriously, what are the risks here? What can we do about it? But let's take some risks. And if we have to deal with them, we'll deal with them. If we end up looking silly, I've, I've reached an age now where I'm not as worried about looking silly as I used to be. So what if, if we end up looking silly, we end up looking silly. We can blame it all on Greg. Um, you know, we need to be people who are prepared to take risks if we're going to see fruit in a rapidly changing world. Paul was prepared to take risks, and we need to as well. That's not to say, health warning, that we should be reckless or stupid. But are we prepared to risk not being what people in the church expect us to be in order to reach those outside? Are we prepared to risk being misunderstood and having our motives questioned because of the way we're seeking to reach out to others? Are we prepared to enter into a culture that we might perhaps struggle with in order to be the lifeboat that gets immersed but not saturated and overcome by the waves and maybe, just maybe, rescue some? Paul was, Jesus was, and so should we be.